Good morning. An element that we're adding to the service is we're thinking on a weekly basis of one of God's commitments, one of his promises to us. And the reason for that is as an ongoing familiarity with God's promises is really foundational to be able to be transformed into the people he wants us to be. Uh, This week, we're going to think about um, that God sympathizes with us. And Denise Hare is going to share, and she's going to be doing that virtually. So John will cue that up, and Denise will talk about... uh, with respect to God sympathizes with me, what it means and what it means to her. Good morning, everyone. For a long time, I couldn't fully grasp the concept of God's sympathy. In trying to get to his sympathy, I'd stumble over his sovereignty. It's been hard for me to reconcile the fact that while God cares, he most often doesn't change the circumstances that trouble me. God has a different perspective or response to suffering than I do. For a time, I also got caught in the details, which made it difficult to find comfort in Jesus' sympathy. Knowing that he hadn't experienced the specific circumstances I experienced, and that he was sinless, felt like something that set him apart from me. Hebrews 4.16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet did not sin. Our high priest is Jesus. He experienced being human, an eternal spirit housed in a mortal survival-based body. And recognizing that Jesus experienced the push and pull of strong feelings has made a difference for me. He understands having competing desires. He experienced and understands division. That's how Jesus can sympathize with us even though he may not have been in exactly the same circumstances, and even though he was sinless. What about God the Father? How does sympathy work with him? This illustration helped me understand both Jesus and God's sympathy. Imagine being back in your elementary school classroom when the message arrives that the principal wants to see you. What would you feel as you walk to the classroom door Would your stomach clench? Maybe your mouth would go dry and your heart would begin to pound. And as you walked that long hallway, your mind might have raced with all the possibilities of what to expect from this most important person. Now let's imagine it another way. And I'm going to personalize the illustration now. I'm summoned to the office. And this time when I open the classroom door, I find my brother standing there. I have to go to the office, I tell him. And he responds, I'll walk with you. As we make our way, he whispers, Denise, it's okay. I've been to the principal's office. He'll be easy to talk to. You don't have to worry. And the strength of my feelings begins to ebb, begin to ebb. As we continue to walk together, the thought occurs to me, hey, what are you doing in the hall? Why aren't you in class? My brother answers, the principal knew you'd be nervous, and he wants you to know that everything's okay, so he sent me to walk with you. Jesus came to be our high priest to sympathize with us, and the reason he came to sympathize with us was because God the Father sent him to do so. This understanding has been very powerful for me. 
It helped me recognize and engage both Jesus' sympathy and the Father's sympathy. Engaging Jesus' sympathy is like having someone who loves me walk with me. I feel less alone. Understanding God's sympathy has been like having a principal who is both powerful and good, one who understands me well. I look forward to being with God and becoming more able to trust his acceptance of all of me, including the parts of me that I'm frustrated with or intolerant of. It's taking a while, but I'm realizing that being with God, who knows and accepts all of me, is the most not alone I can be. Thanks. We're finishing up our series, The Fruit of the Spirit, says the... Get this slide. Here we go. Great. Based on now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Two very different lists of behaviors that we find in this passage. The deeds of the flesh, on the one hand, and the fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand. How can we live lives that are characterized more by the fruit of the Spirit and less by the deeds of the flesh? We need to think about what the fruit of the Spirit means. We've been looking at these fruit individually, but let's take them collectively now and think about what does it mean when it says they are the fruit of the Spirit? Um, It means the Spirit produces these qualities that are listed below in the fruit of the Spirit. So then the question, I guess, would comes to mind is how can we experience spirit influence? So if this is stuff that the Spirit produces, how can we put ourselves in a position where the Spirit will be energizing us so that we can do the things that the Spirit produces? Let's think about what the Bible says about spirit. Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And this verse references two different spirits, a spirit of slavery leading to fear and a spirit of sonship. Um, You might think of the spirit of slavery and the spirit of sonship as two spiritual operating systems, the incompatible operating systems. The spirit of slavery produces the deeds of the flesh. And the, the spirit of sonship produces the fruit of the spirit. So when you, then we think about this verse then, it's not just the fruit of the spirit. What we might identify this as the fruits of the spirit. The deeds of the flesh are really like the fruit of the small s spirit. 
the spirit of slavery leading to fear, when we're innervated by this operating system, it produces the deeds of the flesh. The spirit of slavery unto fear produces the deeds of the flesh. And the spirit, capital S of sonship, produces the fruit of the spirit. Let's think about spirit. What is spirit? Can you think of it when we... when the Holy Spirit, that might make a little more sense to us, but when it talk about a smallest spirit, what does that mean? I think a way to see spirit, spirit is divine influence. And so when we are being influenced by God in some direct way, that's spirit. Spirit comes from the influence of God's word. That seems to be what it says. We'll look at a passage. It says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. One thing about God's words that make his words different from our words, our words are informative. We say something in our words so that people can know something that we want to tell them. God's words are not merely informative. They are performative. They actually accomplish something. They're not just telling us something, but his words create and they have an energy in them that creates what he intends his words to create. If you're thinking of it, you might think of if you have um, Siri or Alexa, you know, then your words actually can turn on a light or turn on the stereo or change the television station. And that way your words are performative. God's words are performative in a deeper way as his words are being contained. And as we think about them, we're mindful of them. His words actually change our thoughts which change our attitudes, which change our actions. So when you're putting God's word in your mind, when you're taking time to think about it, it's not just informing you of something about God. There is a power that God's word releases in us, that it accomplishes things. Um, And then it indicates that the fruit of the spirits, it's, We can, God's word then, can produce or be evidenced by, characterized by, a spirit of slavery that leads to fear. And there is a spirit of sonship. What word creates which spirit? Uh, We're going to talk about that. One more thing that we might see that when it, it describes what the Influence of small as spirit is, and, and it's, James says, or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? There is the spirit that envies intensely. And intense envy is when we don't get what we want, there is a real frustration and a contempt with that. That's what the small as spirit creates. And then there's the spirit that cries, Abba, Father. When we think about this then, the spirit of sonship 
refers to the influence of new covenant words. It's new covenant promises and commitments that God makes when he says, I will put my law on your mind and write it on your heart. I will be your God and you will be my son and daughter. I will cause you to know me. I will be merciful, not reactive to your unrighteousnesses and remember your sins no more. And as we've talked about that, as that understanding as we are clear about how God relates to us, that will naturally start to produce slowly, progressively, the fruit of the spirit. Um, The spirit of slavery refers to the influence of old covenant words. There's not a mistake here. These words were sent to produce the things that they produced. It was not God's purpose for the old covenant to remain his word. Before the foundation of the world, he determined that Jesus would come and fully reveal the Father's words to us as his sons and daughters. The spirit of slavery unto fear was a temporary foundational thing that God put in mind that was to be terminated and replaced by the new covenant. The influence of new covenant words produces the fruit of the spirit. The spirit of slavery refers again to the influence of old covenant words and it produces the fruit of the small s spirit. It says in here, for you did not receive a spirit that You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. I think this is what this means. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. What Paul is referencing is they had been under the influence of that spirit at one point. And these individuals he's talking to are Jews who had become Christians. They put their faith in Jesus. And what Paul is trying to help them to see is that God did not bring you into his family so that you would come back under the influence of the old covenant. That is what they are being pulled in his letter to the Galatians. That's what's happening here. Um, They are being enticed to go back under the influence of the small s spirit. There's individuals that are bringing them back under the jurisdiction of the old covenant. And what Paul is saying, if you go under that influence, it is going to produce the fruit of the small s spirit. It's going to produce the deeds of the flesh. That's why Paul is so careful to get it clear And he wants them to understand, you are not under the old covenant. You are not being innovated by a spirit of slavery unto fear. You are under a new covenant. And as the awareness of the new covenant then grows, it will produce the fruit of the spirit. That's what Paul is saying when he writes, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And again, I don't think he's talking here about body versus non-body. Flesh is another way to describe the old covenant operating system. And 
The Spirit here, capital S Spirit, is another way to describe the New Covenant operating system. They don't jive. They're two incompatible spiritual operating systems. He goes on and says, uh, these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. To be under the law is to be out from under the influence of the Spirit. The Spirit of God will not lead you to conceive of yourself as under the old covenant. That's not what the Spirit of God does. He would have us understand that we're under the new covenant. And as that difference is more and more clear to us, as we get covenant clarity, what ends up happening, the fruit of the Spirit naturally start to be produced because these are the fruit of the Spirit and the Spirit is operative as the new covenant is, our faith is being rooted in the new covenant. Um, These Jews then are being pulled back under the spirit of slavery unto fear and they will produce the fruit of the Spirit, but it will be the wrong spirit. Uh, He goes on and he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We've talked about that, that statement, against such things there is no law. That actually is almost word for word what Aristotle said. He said, against such people there is no law. And what he was doing, Aristotle was referring to people who, being led by virtue, were above the law. And here seems to be his point. When these qualities, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, when these qualities are evident, we are in a sphere with which law has nothing to do. Or, to put it another way, you cannot legislate the fruit of the Spirit. It's, that's, that's a matter of self-control, and these fruit cannot be willed. I would say, then sum up, how can we put our hands around this? And I would, maybe something that would make it possible to, to hang on to it. Um, it seems to be the fruit of the Spirit is a matter of charity, then clarity, then charity. The love that we find in the fruit of the Spirit is not just an emotion, You know, you think of charity, what do you think about? You think of somebody giving, doing something, um, charitable deeds or charitable donations. That's the the love the Bible talks about is kind of more a a sense of charity. And um, clarity, covenant clarity is foundational to experience the fruit of the Spirit. So maybe a way to see this is clarity begets charity as we become clear about what God's promises to us are on this side of the cross, in the new covenant, to the degree we become clear, then the spirit of sonship begins increasingly to take hold. And we find ourselves evidencing the fruit of the spirit, which are love, joy, Charity, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's why we'll continue to focus on a weekly basis one of God's promises or commitments, because as these commitments become more and more familiar to us, we'll find our hearts being more and more changed. Let me pray for us.
Father, thank you for your purposes and your promises. Um, The spirit that you've sent is powerful and his influence is generated as new covenant words come to live in our minds gradually, progressively and slowly. Our understanding of your new covenant will change our hearts and we'll find the fruit of the Spirit gradually beginning to be developed. You pull us out from under an awareness of you that is old covenant-based. Jesus comes to inaugurate a new covenant and to replace the old with the new, to replace the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. So, God, I guess I'd ask that you would continue to allow us to become clearer little by little by little so that more deeply we understand what your purpose and promises to us are. Because as that becomes clear, as clarity begins to take hold, charity will end up coming out of us, will be transformed. Thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.